Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Manchester United responded to a 4-0 defeat away at Anfield with a 3-1 defeat away at Arsenal. Two admittedly difficult games in any season when a good Manchester United team go to both of those stadiums. But the current United team, well, perhaps two defeats was to be expected. It certainly was by United's travelling support going to both games. Um, And I think by the vast majority of United's support who have come to terms with the fact that United are not going to be playing UEFA Champions League football next season and probably won't be playing Europa League football next season. It could be the Europa Conference instead, a first entry into that competition because of not just uh, defeats to Arsenal and Liverpool, but also uh, results all across the season, including some poor ones in recent weeks to Everton and Leicester. Relegation threatened Everton, that is. Welcome to the Manchester United Weekly Podcast. Welcome back to Series 7, Episode 33, with me, Harry Robinson and Jack Tate, as always. Jack, we'll begin on the Arsenal game, then we'll talk a little bit later about it's it's a few days since Eric Tenag's appointment as United manager was confirmed. We've recorded once since then, but we'll speak a little bit about the the reports that have been coming out as to uh, how it how things progressed in that managerial appointment and and like summer transfers and that kind of thing. We'll also have a, a youth load and women's roundup in the middle of the show. But first, the Arsenal performance in the second half, despite. Uh, losing the game this was our best performance for a while actually we didn't get the rub of the green with refereeing results the first half was still terrible uh, really really poor the start to the game was unacceptable that's now Anfield the Etihad and the Emirates where we've all conceded within the first five minutes and completely unnecessarily throwing the game plan out the window but the second half was there was some okay signs there there were I, I think I think the start of the game... I'm clutching at straws. <laughs> yeah. The, I, think the, I think the way we started the game probably meant that we deserved to lose on the, the balance of, of the entire match. But, you know, the second half, we weren't too bad. There were it, it was one of the better performances that we've had in a while, which probably speaks more to how badly we've played recently than how good this performance was. It felt... This game to me felt like a real sliding doors moment because, A, it was obviously against Arsenal, a direct rival for the top four it was you know a chance not only to get a win ourselves but take points off of them plus you know there were there were moments in the game where you know we very easily could have won this game you know like you mentioned a couple of the refereeing decisions which I I think I don't think any of them were howlers were you know justifiable in the way that they went but on another day might be ones that that you get going in your direction you know even Arsenal's second goal with sort of the kind of odd situation with the penalty and the offside, which again, I think was the right decision, but it's just, it, there, there were little things that, that happened that you felt could have gone our way on another day. Obviously, Fernandez missing the penalty. Yeah. He obviously, he missed another great chance in the first half after uh, Ramsdale gave the ball away to McTominay. Yeah. So this really did feel like a sliding doors moment to me that 
if this could so easily have gone the other way and had it done, you know, who knows where, who knows where the rest of our season might take us. But now it's, I mean, it was probably over after Liverpool and it's certainly <laughs> over now. Yeah, definitely. And I think the penalty is interesting. I think it, it speaks volumes as to probably the mental state that Ronaldo's in that he didn't ask to take that. And, and Randick said after that he felt, Ronaldo felt that Bruno should take it and that he wasn't quite right to take it. And that's completely understandable. Uh, and that also speaks volumes to how impressive his performance was because he was United's best player on the day. Uh, his touch, it, it just looks really sharp, Ronaldo. Um, right from the off compared to the rest of the United team. His goal was, was one of finish. his best all-round performances of the season, to be honest. Yeah, I thought I thought every involvement, you just thought, yeah, this is like he's properly controlling this team right now. And and it's a shame it, it came in a defeat and it, it couldn't quite be enough. And it felt to me, I was at the game and I'll get on to how Arsenal fans reacted to it because I grew up around Arsenal and so have most of my mates are, uh, are Arsenal fans and, and they weren't particularly impressed with their own performance as neither was I, to be honest. But it felt in the ground at that point, had Ronaldo taken that penalty and scored it, and of course, he might not have scored it, but he generally does score them, that he would have gone on to get another hat-trick. And there is this completely unmeasurable, intangible kind of feeling in football. You know, when things are just, things just feel like they're happening. And and I think that, I think that players feel that as well. And it's, yeah, it's momentum, isn't it? But there's a feeling particularly with Ronaldo, and it, it's probably also the case with other great strikers throughout different eras, but you just sometimes get a feeling that, it's just happening. And you got that feeling after his first goal against Spurs. You got it after his first goal against Norwich. Um, there's other games where it hasn't ended up in a hat-trick, but you've had that feeling with him, maybe Atalanta in the Champions League, where you just feel like he's gripping a game. And it felt like that. Had he taken the penalty, he was going to go on and get a winner as well. On the other hand, there was also that fear that even if United scored that, given the way we play and how fragile our mentality is, at the moment that Arsenal would have just scored with the next chance in the same way that uh, when we began to play okay against Liverpool at Anfield after this, after half time, they just went and scored the next goal as well. Yeah, I mean, after coming back from 2-0 down, usually you'd back United to go on and and, and win the game. But I, I don't think you can have that confidence with this team at the moment. Yeah. And, you know, I think it this game was very much a an example of two very flawed teams just trying to sort of piece things together as best they can until the end of the season. Like like you mentioned, I, I wasn't particularly impressed with Arsenal. They, yeah. I was about to say they started well. I mean, they started okay. I think more we just started so badly that we made them look better than they, they really were. You know, this isn't a team that creates mm. that many good chances. You know, they've really struggled to score goals until the last couple of games. And we you know we've presented them with far too many opportunities to create good chances we we seem to and, and this is not something that's only happened in the arsenal game but defensively especially in this game i noticed that it felt like we we would get men behind the ball when arsenal had had the ball in sort of structured attacking phases and we'd get men behind the ball and then almost think like well that's the job done like we're defending well because yeah. we have men behind the ball but then it, so there was no there was no actual engagement from those players that were behind the ball to stop the attack. We just made it so easy for Arsenal to just shift the ball, shift the ball, shift the ball. And eventually, if you allow a team to have the ball for long enough in the Premier League under very little pressure, they're going to do something good yeah. with it. You know, you've got to actually be engaging the players on the ball, be following the men when they're making runs. It was just like, we would have a lot of numbers back there, but you just felt like none of none of those players were actually affecting the game in, in, in a big way at all. And like you said, I didn't think that Arsenal would looked great, but we made the game far too easy for them. And 
yeah, it just, it, it felt, this is, we, you know, we, we spoke so many times about fine margins, right? And this felt more than most like a game that was defined by very fine margins, by 50-50 calls. And I think a lot of that is down to the fact that neither of these teams are particularly good at the moment. And when you have teams that have so many problems as as United and Arsenal do, often games do come down to those fine margins more than they would if if one team was playing with a lot of confidence and at a really high level. Yeah. And I've, I think during the 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 heyday of the Oligan and Solskjaer period uh, in kind of J- December, January, February last year, before Pogba got injured, there was, we often spoke about us relying on fine margins and this was the, the opposite way around. We didn't, uh, didn't get the rub of the green on them and, and, and that's kind of how it works. When you're confident, you do tend to get the, the games that swing on fine margins, you tend to win because you finish your chances perhaps at a, more efficiently yeah. than you otherwise would. United obviously didn't that, whether it was a penalty or anything else. Right, because even, even though we didn't get the rub of the green on a couple of decisions, and, you know, that's not to say that the fine margins were completely out of our control. Oh, yeah. You know, we still yeah. got a penalty that Fernandez should have scored. He, he had another chance that he probably should have scored. You know, it's not, when we say fine margins, I don't want people to take that as mm. like, or it's not the player's fault. We just got a bit no. unlucky. Like there were, you know, we had more than enough opportunities to take this game by the scruff of the neck and didn't, a lot, of, a lot of it down to confidence, you can imagine. Worth saying that this is probably the first time we've lost on fine margins for a while. It's not like we're losing yeah. games on yeah. fine margins. It's This was kind of a rare, where we did have a, a little period where we looked okay and, and there were some okay individual performances. Most of the other games recently have, we have thoroughly deserved to lose and there have been games we've drawn and, and yeah. won this year where we've also deserved to lose them really. So this is a, it's it's certainly not a trend. Um, it it was a it's a, been a really bad week for United, and, and with the benefit of a couple of days since the Saturday lunchtime game, we're recording on Monday evening. Things feel less bad, so uh, we're we're not being that negative on it. But if I try and transport my mind back a couple of days, uh, it it has been a really bad week for the club, and not just in terms of performances on the pitch, but from. Ralph Rennick's comments in the in the pre-match press conference where he was kind of modelling United's failure with by taking his glasses off. Um from from yeah, Rennick's comments and obviously Eric Ten Hag's been appointed, that gives clarity and, and a bit of excitement. But also Scott McTominay's comments after the game, I think to uh was it I can't remember whether it was BT Sport or BN Sport or even even United, but there was there there's been a lot of negative commentary on the club and much of it justified. And it it's I think it is a, I think I, I can't decide whether people will look back at this week or the 5-0 against Liverpool as kind of the defining week of this terrible season. And it, maybe it depends whether Liverpool go on to win the league and they look good. It just relies on City winning every game. If Liverpool win the league, then I guess the 4-0 win at Anfield may be looked upon as kind of that, the point um, at which they, at least from our perspective, kind of the point of their way onto the title but I think this week has a a good is a good contender for the one that sums up the season with the negative comments the kind of and even the kind of comments you can get behind from the manager in the press conference but then we go onto the pitch and you see nothing from no kind of positive influence from the coaching staff and and the negative comments from the players two terrible performances and the fact it's two rivals beating us as well it's maybe this week sums sums all of it up I, th- I think this week is is the biggest encapsulation of of everything that's wrong at United at the moment and and you know what I actually think in the long term 
that Ranić and to a lesser extent McTominay being so candid about all of the issues at the club is probably a good thing. But yeah. in terms of summing up, you know, where we are in this current moment, I think, yeah, this is, this does feel like the sort of crescendo of what has been a very long and, and painful build up for a lot of the season. You know, I, I tweeted, I think during the Liverpool game that it's my, my feelings towards, towards Ranić are pretty much defined by whether we're playing on that given day or not. <laughs> Because on any day when we, when Man United aren't playing, you know, I, everything I hear from Ranić is absolutely spot on. And you can't help but feel like he is the best hope that we've had in quite a long time of trying to turn around, you know, what is sort of rot- rotting inside this club. And yet you then, t- you know, you, you tune in on match days and you see what we're putting out on the pitch and you just think, is this, you know, is this really the guy that we want to trust with? rebuilding this club. I know that Ranić isn't actually going to be given the responsibility to to be the one rebuilding the club, but it's just it's such an odd feeling because everything that he says you completely can get behind and he seems to completely get that what is happening and what's wrong at United is far more than just skin deep. And yet I just find it hard to reconcile that with you know, I, I think we've, we've somewhat sugarcoated it, I think, a little bit. Not not just us, but as United as a fan base, because Ranić has said so much good stuff. Yeah. But, you know, as a manager, it's been really bad, really yeah. bad since he took over. I mean, maybe not the entire time since he took over, but definitely the last six weeks to two months. You know, it's been as as bad, I think, on the pitch as the end of, of Solskjaer's time. Yeah. So it is, it's there just an odd There was that turning feeling. point after, there were the games against, uh, Southampton, Brighton and Norwich uh, not Norwich Southampton, Brighton and Watford I think where we didn't get yeah. results in in all of them we did beat Brighton but where we created we played really chances. badly against Brighton okay I've, Southampton we created loads of chances uh, Middlesbrough and is Watford the other one? Wat- yeah Watford was when we we drew 0-0 at home having created like 25 shots yeah. or something Brighton so we, was that- we beat them but played very badly yeah, you had the kind of first few weeks of Ranit where it was just getting through kind of crisis, basically, of stabilising things. Then there was, uh, we we had a few games postponed because of COVID. Then it was the frantic uh, fixture schedule over Christmas. Then the Mason Greenwood news came out. And then, so it was navigating that. Then we had a couple of games where you thought, oh, there's positive signs here. And when those kind of three results didn't go our way, since then it's really, really declined massively. And I think there's definitely an element of, Randick saving his own pride and own reputation really over the last few weeks where he's realised that these players aren't going to do the job for him. And so he's kind of going on the rhetorical offensive, if that makes sense, kind of outlining the big problems at United and making it clear that this isn't just a, a him problem, which we could already know, but not everyone would have known that. And I, I enjoy it as a fan and I think it's needed but there's definitely an argument football on the pitch football wise that it, I'm, well, I don't even think it would be my argument that that certainly not helped the players. There's been no sense of kind of coming together in unity in these final few games of the season. It has been, it, it's very much been things are bad and that's kind of being reflected on the pitch that there is no unity and there is negativity and there is a lack of confidence. And so I'm enjoying reading and listening and watching and seeing what Ranik's saying, but it certainly, it, it is ended up being reflected on the pitch in a negative way for the, for the team, yeah. if not the club. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's felt a little bit like he 
sort of realised that the season was kind of over, you know, about a month to six weeks ago. And then it was like, well, you know, I'm going to turn my attention to to trying to, you know, call out what's actually wrong here and, and making sure that we can sort of lay some groundwork for the future, which is, you know, quite in some ways comforting as a fan, because I think it's the first time that I've really seen the real problems at United being called out so publicly. And it's in some ways, hopefully you'd, you'd hope in, in keeping the people accountable at the top of the club. But at the same time, there's no doubt it can't have been good for the team in, in the short term. And I think actually... The fact that the other teams that have been fighting for the top four have dropped so many points has actually made that yeah. sort of that road that Ranier has gone down be even worse because there actually was a decent chance for us to get top four in the end. Definitely, yeah. You know, I've, I've just been looking back at the the results that you were mentioning how that run. So it felt like things were sort of turning a bit of a corner when we we so we drew two two with Villa, but we yeah, actually we played, played really, really well. well. Yeah for 60 minutes and there was a crazy five minutes. Then we went and beat Brentford 3-1, also played really well. Yeah. Then then we had the Rashford last minute winner against West Ham. We beat them 1-0. We didn't play that well, that but you like felt like keep the momentum up. Yeah. Yeah. And then the next game, we, we lost to Middlesbrough in the FA Cup. Then we drew 1-1 with Burnley at home. Then drew 1-1 with Southampton at home. Then we beat Brighton, but played very badly. Then sort of the one decent performance we had was beating Leeds 4-2. But then you get but into very, the Atletico very away. That Leeds game was not of the same ilk as like the the draw against Southampton or the good performances where we create lots of chances. It was we really yeah. rose to the occasion and we did what we had to do, but it wasn't like in the same style and identity that uh, the, the the kind of positive performances, the other positive performances, had been. Exactly, exactly. And then off the back of that, you just you, we didn't build on it because then we went and played terribly away at Atletico. Yeah. Then we had the nil-nil draw with Watford, and then you get to the Manchester derby where it all sort of came crashing down. So it's just that that period really was, I think, the turning point because we didn't build on a couple of good performances against Villa and Brentford, and then we just went on this run of a combination of bad performances and bad results. Yeah, yeah. Final thing I'll say on the Arsenal game. We haven't dissected it in in the most uh, intrinsic detail because it's it's not pleasant to do. Uh, there there was some there was I mean in in short there was kind of no team shape and it just looked like we didn't know what to do in defence. It was all improvised and and that was never more clearly shown than the first goal. The final thing I'll say is, as someone who made the journey down, it was it was strange at the end of the game. McTominay and Sancho, McTominay especially, but also Sancho, both made kind of apology gestures towards the travelling United fans. McTominay especially just stood there looking completely just distraught. And obviously he did a few interviews after when he probably calmed himself a little bit, but still hadn't really. Just stood there kind of holding his head in one hand and then came a little bit closer, put both hands up maybe three or four times uh, and just looked like he wanted to uh, say sorry. And then Sancho came over and did a, a similar thing, uh, a bit quicker than McTominay. And a few other players came over and, and applauded as they normally do, but half of the team, six or seven of the team who were still on the pitch, most of the subs and the manager and the coaching staff all just headed straight down the tunnel. And he thought, this is, this is the easy stuff and it's a complaint that's often made. And some people will say, oh, why does it matter? And it's, well, it does. And especially having been at Anfield, I was working at Anfield, uh, maybe fortunately or unfortunately on, on Tuesday, but you see how how much Klopp can get Liverpool's support to help the team when it's needed. 
And you think that is possible at United. There is a the, the biggest crowd in the league and one of the best travelling supports in England ready to kind of be exploited there in terms of getting the team to getting the fans to back the team. And this United side this season, well, actually Solskjaer did manage it a lot, but since Ranić's coming, he hasn't been able to do that. And he did make a big call out for the Atletico game and it, it kind of worked for the start, but he hasn't done that. And and the team are really failing to do that. And the, the disconnect is is massive with most of, of the players. And it was nice to see McTominay and Sancho do that. And I think appreciated by most people in the away end. I think what the fans want more than anything at the moment is, well, two things. One, some accountability and two, almost just some recognition that the players care and that they understand that this isn't good enough. You know, because it, I'm not going to lie, at times you you watch this team and you just think, like, do they is it, like do they really care when they go off the pitch that they've just been beaten, you know, 4-0 four, four by Liverpool or 3-1 by Arsenal and that the season's over? Because a, a lot of the time, like, you can see them, they're getting frustrated on the pitch, yeah. but it almost seems more like you're just frustrated that, you haven't scored personally and then you go off the pitch and everything's fine again and like you know we talked about this before fans care so much so much one of the, the you know the beautiful things about football is that regardless of who you support these are institutions yeah. that people feel so so connected to and so it doesn't take that much to keep them I don't want to say keep them happy because obviously we're not going to be happy if we're not winning, but to at least keep fans somewhat on your side and, and sort of maintain their respect. Yeah. It doesn't take that much to do that. They just want to see that you care the same amount that, that all the fans do. And it just little things like that do make a huge difference to the way that fans are going to respond and how much slack they're going to give you. Because it's one thing to know that your season's kind of over. Like a lot of us expected our season to be over months ago when Solskjaer was sacked. Yeah. You know, so it's not as if this is something that's only happened now. Like we just wanted to see some amount of of care and passion and identity come back into this team. And you know, I spoke about that in the the Ten Hag reaction episode that I just want I want this United team to have an identity again. I don't feel like we yeah. do and it seems like the only identity identity that we have at the moment is losing and infighting basically. Yeah. The confidence has gone so, so much. Yeah, and also, what, what was, I said it was the last thing I say, but the other thing was Arsenal's second goal that ended up being scored as a penalty, but was originally scored by Nketiah. Uh, after that, De Gea was furious at the decision. And United's players had taken the ball back to the centre circle ready for kickoff. And De Gea was screaming at them to say, give me the ball back. I'm going to put it down for a free kick. And which is exactly what you should do. You should just, put on a show that you believe you're going to get the decision and it helps it it changes people not changes people's minds but it affects the decision and it, it certainly presents kind of a certainty in what you think at least and you had Bruno Ronaldo and uh, I can't remember who else was up there but just sitting in the centre circle kind of arguing between each other and they were shouting like give me the ball back give me the ball back I put it down and it took them a minute to do it then the decision gets changed uh, the goal was offside a penalty gets given Arsenal score it and after that then all the United's players go over to the ref and complain about the penalty. And he thought, they've scored it already. It's not going to get overturned now. Whereas Arsenal's players, and you can decide personally whether you think this is acceptable or the right thing to do or not, I don't care. Just do whatever you can to win the game. Were right by the referee while he was at the monitor making the decision, ending up in Arsenal getting a penalty. And yes, the referee shouldn't be able to be influenced, but it's just a fact of life. And they do. 
and United's players are terrible at it. And and this was one of the biggest examples. I said to you before we talk about uh, the, on the subject of refereeing, there were plenty of kind of content, well, very much contentious decisions in this game. There was also in the Merseyside derby. And the other interesting thing this week was a first WSL game, Women's Super League game, uh, had mic'd up referees on Sky Sports. I didn't watch the game live, but I watched a five, six minute clip on YouTube that we can share or put in the description or whatever. And yeah, just fascinating the way that, I mean, I think the most, the thing people found most fascinating was how offside calls, how the referee will tell their assistant through the microphone system uh, every time the pass is played to help the assistant referee look across the line and see if something's offside. That's the kind of little insight that I had never known before and is fascinating, but they're also just the way they dealt with players authoritative or being chatty to them. It was interesting. And um, Jack, you've refereed in the past. Would you want mics, uh, mics on referees on live TV? Yeah, 100%. I think it's a great step. I'm so glad that the WSL are, are trialing it because listen, I, I, I feel, I feel for referees a lot when I, when I see sort of the coverage that they are given, because I think a lot of the decisions that they make, even if people disagree with them, are, com- are completely justifiable at certain times. And I think they really don't help themselves because, and not the referees as individuals, sort of the whole institution of, of refereeing and the way it's, it's uh, organised. I don't think they help themselves because they keep it shrouded in such secrecy. You know, there are so many decisions where if you've had the benefit of being a referee or or sort of knowing the process that they have to go through, even if you might disagree with the eventual outcome, you can completely respect and understand yeah. the process that's, that they've gone through to make the decision. And yet, because we don't get any of that insight, it's so easy for you know pundits on Sky Sports or wherever to sit there and you know berate every little thing about the decision because all they see is the outcome, when actually the, the process is also important and the process that, that you go through. I think the more information is is given, it will have two benefits. One, it will help to raise the standard of refereeing because they will feel like they can't get away with it now if they sort of make a decision that is unjustifiable or where they did get the process wrong. And two, it will help fans, pundits, you know, anyone involved in the game will help them understand the thinking that goes into decisions. So I think from both sides, it should it should be a good thing. Like I, th- I think t- sort of taking our game against Arsenal is probably a good example. Like they were all... So if you if you take the the Sancho and Elanga possible penalties and then the Inketia, um he was potentially offside for for Jack for Jacker's goal for blocking De Gea's view. Yeah. All three of those decisions I think could have gone either way and are perfectly justifiable. As a United fan, of course, you sort of come out of that game and you say, "Well, we're a bit unlucky that we all three of those went against us." But I think all were perfectly fine and justifiable decisions. But the, the, the discussion around them w- would have been so much less and it wouldn't have been blown up if we could just see the conversation that happened to get there. I think you know, that the, the key conversation you want to hear is between the referee and the video assistant referee. Yeah, 100%. I think the conversations between, it'd be great to hear between the refs and their assistants, the ones running the line after the game. It would be really interesting and it would be great bits of content and and fascinating to watch and, and interesting and educational. But the ones live you, you really want to hear yeah. that can make the game clearer and that can yeah, give you that clarity on the decision to make you understand and make you less frustrated at players, fans, managers and those sitting at home. Well, um, especially because yeah, like, and I, ones between I, ref I and think VR. most people understand that 
like Premier League, which football. is what they do in rugby. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 in cricket now too, you hear the the conversation between the third umpire yeah. and the you know the TV director when they're doing all the replay reviews there as well. I think like most football fans understand that this is Premier League football. Things happen very quickly and in real time. I don't think anyone expects the referees to get every single decision right. But with VAR, you do have that expectation because they have the benefit of looking at it so many times. So that is really the key one because when when you feel like decisions are still being made wrongly, even after having been watched, you know, 10, 15 times in slow motion, they really are the decisions yeah. I think where people get the most frustrated and we should be able to hear what those conversations yeah. are. We should. Like there was after the um the Merseyside Derby this weekend, there was the the Anthony Gordon um, challenge from Matip that wasn't given as a penalty. And after the game, the PGMOL come out and say, we wouldn't have had a problem with, uh, who was there? Was it Stuart Atwell, yeah. I think, giving a penalty there. And you just think like, okay, so then what was the process like when VAR was reviewing it and you decided not to? Because I think what they meant by that was it was a 50-50 decision. It wasn't a clear and obvious error, so we didn't overturn it. But if he had have given the penalty in the first place, we also wouldn't have overturned it to not be a penalty, which makes sense. But when the only information that you're giving people is that one little line of, we wouldn't have had a problem if it was, if it was given as a penalty, it makes people think, so it was a penalty then. Why didn't you overturn it? Why didn't you make him go to the monitor? And if we could just have that clarity of that conversation between VAR and Stuart Atwell, where the VAR says, Stuart, we've looked at it. It's a 50, 50 challenge, but not a clear and obvious error. We're sticking with your decision. Play on. Like that's all it would need. Yeah. And and having watched the WSL one, the conversations between referee assistants are uh, succinct and and quick and uh, efficient because they have to be. So it's not like this would be interrupting broadcasting a great deal. It's not like it would be hard to understand because they have to communicate in in that professional yeah. manner. We're going to wrap up um, very shortly. We haven't really spoken about the reaction to Ten Hag, but having over having it, having been a couple of days, are you more or less excited than when it was announced? Probably more, to be honest. I think it sounds like he's going to get his choice of assistant in Mitchell van der Gaag, although there is potential that he might still take the IX job. But I mean, I think that that's at least yeah. a, a good sign that, you know, he has managed to sort of win that first sort of power struggle, I guess, with the club. Uh, there's just been news come out as we're recording that he's scheduled sort of one-on-one meetings with all, all of the players. I, I, it seems to me like he's, he's laying the groundwork well. Yeah. And I mean, it obviously remains to be seen how everything actually sort of plays out. But I think you couldn't have really asked for much more in the few days after it was formally announced. And it it really now, I think, just comes down to how sort of those conversations go and how he views this squad fitting into to what he to what he wants to do. I guess the only the only potential sort of negative story that's come out is there was one I, I can't remember from who it was that I saw on Twitter that apparently some of the players are underwhelmed. Yeah, but- which you know is. <laughs> Kind of to be expected, to be honest. I yeah. think I think it was always going to come out that there was some kind of story like that from some player's agent who, you know, thinks their player won't fit in yeah, well with that exactly. system and might be sold or, or something it's, like that. Sometimes it is players, but more often it's it's agents kind of trying to work something for their, their client. I think in terms of things I've yeah. read, uh, there's one really interesting part of an interview with Tobias Schweinsteiger, Bastian's brother, who played, was captain for Bayern Munich's second team when Ten Hag was manager. That's on United's website. A bit of it came out on Monday, full things on Tuesday. That's really interesting and it got me excited because it was very positive. Uh, and the other, I had another thing in my head that was very good that I read. Uh, 
I can't remember it. It was in my head a second ago. But yeah, there's been lots of really interesting things about Ten Hag's philosophy yeah. and and also just his man management is the stuff that's been really interesting. Finally, before we wrap up, uh, Chelsea on on Thursday night is our next game. Then it's Brentford. We may record in between a prediction for Chelsea. Well, I mean, Chelsea have been shipping goals like no tomorrow recently. So, um, I mean, this could yeah. be like 5-5 five, five if uh, both teams keep playing the way they have been. But I mean, probably a serious prediction. Yeah. 2-1 Chelsea. Yeah. You'd, you'd, I'd, I'd hope we'd score at, at home. Um, and I'll, I'll take that. Uh, there was, it's not the one I was remembering, but there's another great thing from Simon Cooper on off the ball about Ten Hag as well. There's loads of stuff. I'm sure you've seen, seen plenty of it. Um, via Schweinsteiger interviews, interesting as well. Exciting for me, for me as well. Like, like I mentioned earlier about just wanting a team with an identity, you know, all the focus that seems to be on, you know, it's, it's not just winning that's important. It's how you win and wanting to feel like you win in the right way with beautiful attacking football. You know, that is Ten Hag down to a T. And like I said, it it sort of goes under the radar a little bit that really the last time United had an on-pitch identity was was with Louis van Gaal. And we didn't really like that identity because it it wasn't very entertaining. But yeah, we have Mourinho's famous... There was a little bit of one under Ole. There was... An identity under Ole, it's just it was I think I think more I think more at the start though, it yeah, was when yeah. we was became this sort of really good counter-attacking team. When we became a bit more established under Solskjaer, I think that sort of went away a little bit. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Um the other thing I was thinking of is Training Ground Guru, who is a, a great website, loads of interesting stuff, particularly if you, you like kind of like your coaching and, and the behind the scenes work at academies and, and first team as well. They're hosting a even a podcast in an evening with Rennie Mullenstein, who will no doubt be asked about Ten Hag. So that'll be kind of a fresh opinion and, and that'll be something really interesting as well. I think that'll be on their podcast in the next few days. And unique as someone who knows both about Ten Hag and yeah. about United as well. Yeah, exactly. And r- rumoured that he may have a role with the club in the future, but I don't know how, I don't know how reliable uh, those reports are. Okay, let's start a youth loan and women's roundup with the FA Youth Cup. Not being played yet. The date is Wednesday 11th of May. United under 18s play Nottingham Forest looking for the club's 11th, which would be a record 11th FA Youth Cup triumph. There have been 10 in the past. Chelsea are next best on nine. You will have read plenty about it or heard me talk about it, but it's a very exciting occasion. A couple of weeks time, 28,000 tickets sold already. United hoping to uh, break the FA Youth Cup record by selling another 10 or 15,000 on top of that. All tickets for a quid. Uh, all proceeds from those tickets go to the Manchester United Foundation, which supports some great causes across Manchester and, and elsewhere. So if you're local and uh, free on that night, highly recommend going down. The FA Youth Cup final is normally brilliant quality as well. And this team is very exciting. I will speak more about the FA Youth Cup team and the whole occasion in future. But yeah, just an update that plenty of tickets sold and and is building up to be a very exciting night at Old Trafford. One of the few uh, going into this back end of the season. As for the under-18s league form, been mixed. Loads of games in April. Their most recent uh, result was a 6-0 win over Newcastle and uh, Joe Hugel scored. Ethan Ennis scored two. I think Amari Forson scored. Uh, Charlie McNeil didn't score, but very impressive kind of all-round display in terms of his build-up play. That was a good, good result. And United have missed chances in their few games before that. There was a uh, 1-0 loss to Burnley. There was a draw, I think, against Wolves. A few chances missed in those games, but very, as the lead coach, Travis Binion, said, made up for in that Newcastle game by scoring six goals. So that was a good win. Um, the form's okay. There are some players really on 
in, on fire. Ethan Ennis being one of them who hasn't really had a role in the FA's Cup team. So it'll be interesting to see whether he might be able to squeeze his way into a starting spot. I think probably not. It'll be Alejandro Garnacho and Sam Mather on the wings as it has been throughout. But Ennis is in great form. And obviously Alejandro Garnacho will be with the first team. So not playing for the 18s at the moment, but 99% sure he will play in the FA's Cup final. As for the under-23s, they spent a a few days training in Monaco uh, and had a behind-closed-doors game against AS Monaco. It's the resumption of a programme that began before the pandemic, which saw the under-23s play against AC Milan, Hertha Berlin and PSV Eindhoven. And they're trying to kind of keep that experience of playing against different opposition and travelling and going through the airport, staying at a hotel, training in a different environment going. So that, that sounds very much like a positive under-23s drew with Arsenal on Friday night in their third game at Old Trafford. So there was a game against Everton, which they won 3-0, a 1-0 win against Chelsea at Old Trafford and a 1-1 draw against Arsenal last Friday night. No, I remember on scoring the goal after a brilliant defence-splitting pass from Shola Shuratiri. Damani Miller almost scored a winner, uh, almost poked home from a, a deflected Emiran shot, but couldn't quite get there. Mello's playing really well and leading that team really well to uh, come back. Not a different player but a much more well-rounded and much more leading player after his loan at Salford City even though he barely played at Salford so that shows the benefit of a loan even if you don't play Um, and the under-18s have two games in two days this week first against Blackburn on Tuesday night and then Wolves on Wednesday lunchtime and then there's a third on Saturday against Derby busy schedule because of postponed games due to weather and also the FA Youth Cup that'll be a test and the under-23s finish their Premier League 2 season with an away game at Liverpool on Sunday at 2pm. Um, they will ensure a top five finish if they win against Liverpool, which is good given how the season started. Um, a young team, a few bad results against Chelsea, I think 6-1 against West Ham, I think conceded six as well, but have been much better in the second half of the season. And that's a, a sign of their growth and development. As for loan moves, um, Mate Kovar, probably the star of the recent weeks, kept four consecutive clean sheets for Burton Albion. The first clean sheet was on his debut. He signed for Burton in January on loan and Jimmy Floyd Bank, the manager, said he was just giving him a chance in the back end of the season. He gave him that chance, kept a clean sheet and then kept three on the bounce. Um, against Wigan Athletic, Atkins and Stanley and Rotherham. So that's great for Kovar. He got a couple of Man of the Match awards and an EFL Team of the Week award as well. So brilliant for him, Czech Republic goalkeeper. I don't know whether he'll stay in the side for the rest of the games, but you'd like to hope so. Uh, and yeah, real positive for him to round off a, a loan move, which has been a good experience, but now has also been uh, kind of a real confidence boost as well. Ethan Laird uh, having three starts in the last fortnight for FC Bournemouth. So that's good as well. Uh, after a great first half of the season at Swansea City and then didn't really play for Bournemouth. Looked a bit of a strange move, partly because of injury, but also didn't fit into their promotion chasing team. But now he's getting a few games as they look to cement that second place in the championship where Fulham have just been automatically promoted from. Nottingham Forest going for promotion and possibly automatic. They could beat Bournemouth to it, but more likely to be in the playoffs, which will be played 13th to 17th of May. James Garner obviously involved in then. As for United women, a really disappointing result on Sunday evening. Uh, drew nil-nil with Aston Villa, which puts a, a, a real dampener on their hopes of qualifying for the Champions League by finishing in the top three of the Women's Super League. United have Chelsea on the last game of the season away from home. Chelsea are going for the WSL title, competing with Arsenal. So that's going to be a really difficult game anyway. And United really needed to 
beat West Ham a few weeks ago, that was in the middle of March, and beat Villa yesterday on Sunday evening to have a chance of making that Chelsea game irrelevant at the end of the season. As it goes, City are behind by one point, uh, United in third, City in fourth, but City have a game in hand. So looking likely that City will gazump United to that final Champions League spot. Um, in the WSL. So that's a shame for Mark Skinner and his team, but hopefully they can get a bit lucky and maybe, maybe just manage it. Um, we'll wrap up there. Patrons, uh, no bonus Q&A this week just because we're very short on time. We will get to your questions as soon as possible. May host uh, a separate kind of Q&A episode to make up for this week's lack thereof. But patrons, thank you very much for your support. Listeners, thank you for listening as always. Much appreciated. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on your chosen podcast app. If a reviewing function exists, you know where to find us on Twitter throughout the week. Uh, We'll speak to you soon. Have a great week. Goodbye. Podcast Network.